0: Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. It's good to see all of you this morning, as always. Turn your Bibles, if you would please, to the first book of Samuel. It might be a little bit. Maybe I just turn me down just a little bit. First book of Samuel, uh, chapter fourteen. Uh, we're going to be picking up where we left off last Sunday, which is kind of a little bit flexible here. I'm going to be t- I'm going to be taken off from where Ivan left off from verses uh, from verse fourteen. Uh, So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, Thank you that, Lord, we still have the freedoms in this country to be able to stand behind the pulpit and preach truth. Uh, Lord, we ask God your blessing upon this short time together. Uh, Lord, that you would bless your people. Lord, that you would open their hearts so that they would hear you speak and not me speak, Lord. Father, that this would exalt Christ and this would be about the Lord and not about anybody trying to drive a church with their personality so lord just be glorified uh, in the preaching of your word Uh, use it lord god to strengthen your people in jesus name amen we're going to be picking off so if you're if you're in your bible um please follow along i'm going to be picking up uh in verse 14 we'll be finishing out uh to verse 23 so and then obviously the 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 chapter continues. We're going to be stopping at 23, so you can follow along as we go uh, in your Bible, so that I won't read all of this, but we're going to unpack all of it, so you can follow along um, as we go. So once again, uh, beginning this morning, where Brother Ivan left off last Sunday, from, verses, uh, from verse uh, 1 all the way down uh, until verse 6 and 7, so... We read about the first slaughter in which Jonathan and his armor bearer destroyed 20 Philistines within about a half an acre of land. Jonathan, contrary to his father Saul, knew that the battle was the Lord's. He knew God would use him to fight. They said in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your hearts. One of the amazing things about this situation here is that courage always begets courage. You ever notice that? You get around people who are determined to follow Christ, determined to love His Word, affectionate towards their relationship with Him, striving uh, for holiness. Um, You find that these kind of people, as we all know, are extremely contagious. I like to be around, personally, I like to be around people who are courageous i like to be around people who want to follow hard after christ and not after the world i mean proverbs gives us many warnings doesn't it uh that you become the people that you you hang out with you know i understand that within our hearts uh you know corruption comes out of us consistently and we could always be that person that others shouldn't hang around with right but the reality is this is that courage always begets courage when Jonathan saw God's confirming sign, he didn't lay down his sword and start praying that God would strike them all down. As Guzik states, he prayed and made sure his sword was sharp and trusted God would use him to strike them all down. And the confirmation from his armor bearer would have been reassuring as well. Truth, True faith, remember this, true faith always takes action. Truth, faith, always takes action. As James says, faith without works is what? Dead, right? There's an entire chapter in Hebrews dedicated to those who stepped out in faith and witnessed God performing miracles beyond the scope of human strength. And I think the number one thing I really want to focus on this morning is that we would be encouraged to step out in faith. And not live only in the means of our own strength, because we can get comfortable, right? Our lives can go a certain way, very patternistic. You know, we we just we live within the confines of self-preservation, right? We keep ourselves from getting involved. We don't really want to do do a whole lot because those fears keep us keep us in slavery to what God's called us to do. But as the Church of Jesus Christ, the Lord's people should always be involved in invading the darkness around this world. We are the ones that have been left here to be salt and light, to bring the gospel into those dark areas. No one else has the answer that Christians have. We're the only ones truly that can remedy the situation. right? We're, it's, it's always at the bottom line level. It always has to do with sin. And the only way a person can be delivered out of their sin is to hear the gospel. Right? And we've got to invade these areas. We've got to confront the darkness with light. True faith always takes action. Hebrews 11.1, just for an example. We see here, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, for the evidence of things not seen. And this is where... uh, You know, we can get caught up in, in this reality that everything that we see, everything we know is comfortable to us, right? But we have got to learn as God's people that we must step out, trust God to move on His own behalf in the lives of His people. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go into the place which he would receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't know where he was going. But the Bible says he stepped out in faith. Despite that, he trusted God and he went forward. The Bible goes on in verse 27 of Hebrews uh, chapter 11. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, talking about Moses, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. True faith authenticates as well. It authenticates. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 7, verse 29. He says, It was said of Jesus, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Showing sort a of dichotomy here, Some sort of the antithesis here of what true faith looks like, not just in Jonathan's case, as he all of a sudden just leaped into battle. He knew it was the right thing to do. He pursued the enemy, he fought the enemy, and God was with him. God blessed him, not because of just his faith in itself, but his faith in God, that God would do what he said he would do, that God would perform something beyond these two little men could do to an entire army. But it's also, it's faith that steps out in our Christianity. It may not be leaping out in front of the Philistines or chasing down your enemies, but it's faith that it shows by your action. Right? We don't want to just be those people that just talk about our faith. You know, talk about our Christianity, talk about the Bible, great theologians, know the Word of God inside and out. But reality behind the scenes, you're not living out any of these things. As a matter of fact, it's not even that. It's that you're living for the world. Right? It's, not, it doesn't make, it's contrary. It doesn't make sense in light of the Scripture. Not me, but what the Bible says, a true believer, how we should represent Christ, represent God. John the Baptist did a great job. In confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Scribes and the Doctors of the Law in his day, when he confronted them in Matthew chapter three eight, when he says, "Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God," right? Because we can all fake things, right? I think Saul was a faker, and I think the Scriptures will expose that reality. I think he was hiding when he should have been in the battle. He should have been at war. He should have been leading his people. It should have not been Jonathan jumping in the fray. It should have been Saul jumping in the fray. It shouldn't be Saul following Jonathan. It should be Jonathan following his father. Right? Complete backwardsness there in the life of Saul. Anyways, turning back to what uh, the confrontation that the Baptists had uh, towards the Sadducees and Pharisees is these religious leaders, they would love to show off with their flashy prayers. The best thing that we can, we can hide behind in the Christian life today is exactly what the Pharisees hid behind in their day. And Jesus exposed them. They, the religious leaders would love to show off with their flashy prayers, their grim fasting faces, their giving, and their good works. Jesus said that they did it to be seen by men and for what? The glory of men. Jesus wasn't impressed at all. As a matter of fact, He called them what they truly were, and that was hypocrites. We don't want to be hypocrites. Now, I would say this. From the reading of Scripture, I don't think any Christian could be labeled, quote-unquote, a hypocrite. I think Christians act hypocritical at times. But the Bible only uses that language towards unbelievers and the wicked. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus called them hypocrites, snakes. He never called his disciples that. You know, we do act hypocritical, don't we? At times, I mean, who doesn't, right? But we're never labeled and defined as hypocrites because that's reserved for the lake of fire. You know, we don't work we're, we're, we're not hypocrites, but we do behave as the Bible says contrary to what we're supposed to do much of the time, right? Just as Jonathan is contrasted with his father Saul, so it is true as well with authentic believers false ones many trust in the facade of performance titles money just to try to convince others that they are truly powerful and spiritual people right we see that all over today people flashing their money flashing their cars flashing their big houses these pastors walking around their flashy suits you know, that's not biblical Christianity by any means. I'm not saying biblical Christians can't be wealthy, because they most certainly can. But listen, these aren't things, that, these things become a facade, right? You're good at something, so you hide behind that to try to show how religious you are to other people. But pretending under a blanket of hypocrisy just intensifies God's judgment against them. Though they may get away with it now, there will come a day when all these costumes and all their masks are stripped away and all of you laid bare before a holy and righteous God." Jonathan had faith, but Saul seems he was sniffing daisies underneath the tree while his son was busy attacking the enemy. This faithful attack caused trembling in the camp, in the field, as the Bible says, and among the people. In verse 15 it says, "...and there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders also trembled and the quaked, so that it was a very great trembling or which could be um, in the original language, it would be it would be this idea of this trembling of God. In other words, that this trembling, this shaking, this move, this earthquake was actually of the Lord. Causing a disarray, causing this confusion, causing the armies of the Philistines to turn on each other, but also having Jonathan and his armor bearer out there in the very heat of battle, slaying and fighting and beating these enemies to the ground. God was with them. You know, in one sense, you look at this and you see the faith of Jonathan moving, and we see God just following him in, leading and following him into battle and shaking everything up and moving on behalf of these two men, fighting for the Lord. Matthew Henry writes, There was trembling in the host. It is called a trembling of God, signifying not only a great trembling that could not resist nor reason themselves out of, but that it came at once from the hand of God. He that made the heart knows how to make it tremble. Isn't that the truth? Calvin says in that insensible creatures tremble for fear of God's judgment, it declares how terrible his vengeance will be against his enemies. But it also shows how clearly faith moves the hand of God. God acknowledges Jonathan's faith by shaking everything that can be shaken. Hebrews 12 says, twelve twenty five says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. And of those things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. I mean, that's enough just to sit on and just let that resonate and stew into our spirits and realize that, listen, God is a holy and righteous God. He's just and holy. And this idea that, you know, much of what's peddled today in our country, in the churches in this country, not all, there's a lot of really great churches out there, but a lot of churches out there, they peddle a false Christ they preach a false Christ. They preach a a, a Santa Claus version of God. It looks down on his spoiled children, just wanting to bless them consistently. It's nowhere to be found in Scripture. I think every one of us, including myself, would see the battle against my own sin less terrific if I looked more to God as who he is defined in Scripture. I think our own hearts betray us. I think we even deceive ourselves and we like it. We like to bring God down to a certain level to where we feel comfortable with our sin and we don't really think God cares about those sins. But the reality is that God does care and God knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. You know, this is a a major thing that, you know, the fear of the Lord, which we heard this morning spoken from Ivan, it drives us away from our sin. Right? The Bible says the fear of the Lord causes men what? To depart from what? Iniquity. The fear of the Lord's good. It's not just this idea of being terrified of God in the sense that you just don't want to go to hell so you serve Him that way. That's not what is spoken. It's it's this idea that God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, but He sent His Son in our place to take upon Himself the total wrath of God in our place as a substitutionary death to bring His people, the church, to redemption. Right? This is something we got to look at and understand as well that would propel us to live a godly and holy life. Yes, God can still make the earthquake before his enemies, but now he sends forth his servants into the world to proclaim the law and the gospel to unregenerate men, causing them to tremble, causing them to shake underneath a conscience that senses the coming wrath of God. We don't got to wait around for God to send another earthquake, do we? I mean, we go out into the world with something that's the most powerful weapon on all the planet, and that's Jesus Christ. We proclaim Christ. The God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man. Right? We, this is who we proclaim. Because only in Christ and the power of the gospel can we see men literally ripped out of the jaws of hell right? Right out of Satan's traps, right into the kingdom of God. We always want to be honest, even at the expense of maybe losing our popularity or losing our friends or being thrown in jail or possibly even killed. Christ comes first. Our nation right now is so desperate for godly men and women. That's so true. That's so true. You could study history And you go back as far as you want and you'll see that any nation that has prospered has always been when there's been a few godly men and a few godly women that would stand up and follow Christ. No matter what the population was saying, they always stood in the gap. It's always that way and it'll always be that way until Christ returns. For us this morning, we have got to be willing to look at these things and say, listen, No sin in my life is worth being held captive to to make me unfit to be able to go out into this world and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, we all stumble, we all struggle, we all sin, we all have our issues. Most of us, like me, are dysfunctional in a lot of ways. But the reality is it's Jesus Christ that we take into the world and we have to step out into a world that is dying right before our eyes and going into hell. Do you realize 150,000 people die every 24 hours? 86 people are going into eternity. I believe it's every minute. I mean, think about the masses that are going into eternity. I mean, all around us, right? And we have the answer. You don't have some f- some philosophical, mathematic equation for people. You have the gospel. And you realize the gospel is the only thing that's going to save a person from their sin and bring them into a right relationship with God. It's the only way. And if you say, well, yeah, but you know what? It's, some people seem to be doing a lot better than others. Blah, blah, blah. i see Christians that are a mess. I've seen the ungodly who are doing well. You can read Psalm 73. That's the same thing that ASAP saw. He saw the same thing. He saw that the godly people were were seemed like to be the, the lowest rung of the ladder and all the worldly people seemed to be at the top until he went into the sanctuary and he saw their end. He realized there's going to come an end to all this. All of this is going to come to a startling, sober end. It's going to be over. Everyone's life, you're all going to go to the grave. Some of you don't know when. Some could be, you know, today. You just don't know. God forbid that anybody would pass away today. But we just don't know. We're not God. Our lives can be snatched from us at any moment. So we've got to look at this life as just a vapor. It's just a moment. This is just a fleeting moment. When you're laying on your deathbed, if God gives you a deathbed, not many people get a deathbed experience. Most people are taken out of this world when they don't expect it. The majority never are able to plan for a deathbed experience. But just remember how fast life goes by. It's fleeting. It's like a vapor, the Bible says. Take this time that God's given you, the, the little time that we have left on this planet, and use it for the glory of God. Be spent on Christ. Use your whole entire existence. Cast it at the feet of Christ. And He will use you for His glory. And you will be better for it. Trust me. Your conscience will be clean. And you will no longer be attracted to the things that are of this world verse 16 says now the watchman of saul and gibeah of benjamin looked and there was the multitude it was melting away and they went here and they went there as the watchmen of israel kept an eye on this huge army of the philistines the army started to melt away as they watched so you got the watchmen watching this battle for saul right and this whole army of the Philistines, and he got two guys out there fighting. And remember, from the previous chapters, there was no weapons. All the weapons had been confiscated. Right? There's only few people had weapons. And here's Jonathan and his armor bearer out there in the middle of the fold, in the middle of this huge battle. I mean, just get your eyes and head in this for a moment. Just think about this for a moment. You guys all seen movies, right? Where the big battles are going on? Well, think about just two guys out in the middle. You and your buddy out in the middle just duking it out, right? With a big old gang of people of just I don't know how many people were there in the Philistines, but I could imagine it's pretty big. And you're right there dealing trying to deal with all this, and God is using you powerfully. God is moving through you for his own glory, for his own victory, and for his own testimony. He's annihilating everything that comes in the path of these two men. That's pretty heroic and pretty intense. I love to read it, but this is, what, this is what the watchman was seeing. Now, could you imagine visualizing that? Like, you know, you're, it's almost like you know, you're looking down, you're seeing this all take place, and you're seeing these two guys down there in the fray. And this army is just melting away. They're not only killing these men, but the men are killing themselves. They're in complete confusion. The Philistines are just out of their mind, and God is shaking everything, including their hearts, their minds, and their ground. Everything's being shaken, right? And this is the kind of imagery that we have to think of and what these watchmen were seeing before their eyes. You can only imagine. You really got to get into this to really think about what was happening here, what was being seen. And I know... Listen, I know it bothered Saul. I know it bothered him. Wouldn't it bother you? You're supposed to be the guy leading, and you're up on the hill, right? You're looking down and seeing all this take place. Your son's down there just wreaking havoc on everything, and you're standing up there fooling around. Like, what are you doing with your time? Well, the Bible tells us what he's doing at this time. The watchman of Saul would have clearly seen the chasm of this extraordinary conflict, but when we go to the verse 17, it says, Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now, listen closely to this. He says this. Okay, imagine, right? The battle's going on. The earth's being shooken all around, shaken, excuse me, all over the place. And he called, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. Okay? And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So, Okay. It's not time to call the roll. It's not time for a meeting. It's not time for a church meeting. It's time to engage in the battle. You know what I mean? I mean, how does this look for us today? Well, we should be engaging in the battle, but, you know, it's like you, you see some of these churches, endless church meeting after, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. It's always something about something about something. Well, the real battle's taking place out there in the world. You know, we're to engage you were to engage, in what we see here with Saul, he should have been engaging, but here he was, because he's the one in authority, he wants to sit there and read the role and see who's missing from the role. He wants to do a head count. Of all times to do a head count now, Saul? Really? That's really what you want to do. Saul chose to look busy in other ways to avoid actually engaging the battle, one that would make him look important opposing to being productive. Very similar to what we're seeing happening in American fun land Christianity. Everyone looking busy while the masses slip into hell. Endless meetings, paperwork, potlucks, parties. While well, the battle rages all around us and we simply do nothing. Now, am I saying that about you? No. I'm saying that's always something to be a very sobering reminder of the state that this country is in. We can, we can sit there and twiddle our thumbs and blame the Democrats or blame whoever, blame the president, blame all these other people. It's really easy to do that. It's easy to watch the news and just get uptight and get mad and can't wait till either Trump or someone else gets into the presidency and all of our problems will go away. We can go on living like we normally live. It's never the answer. Political leaders are never the answer for our country. The Bible says judgment comes first to the house of God. It's always the church's responsibility to go into the world. And it always goes back to what? The pulpit. It always goes back to the authority of the pulpit. When the pulpit goes down, the nation goes down. This is a true fact. true fact of history. This is why the greatest battles that are won start right here in this little congregation today. It's a simple preaching of God's truth. Nothing extravagant. I've got smoke machines up here. right? I'm not playing... A cool riff on my guitar. I'm not in my pinstripe suit. Not saying nothing about pinstripe suits. You know what I'm getting at. But not trying to do something, you know, outside of what God has commanded us to do. I mean, it's a true disgrace when you see someone undeservingly, and I know none of us deserve God's grace, but it is a disgrace when you see someone undeservingly get recognition for something they did not do or did not deserve in the sense of their accomplishments. One particular story I want to bring to your bring to the table this morning to give you guys kind of a uh, an idea what what has happened recently. Um, if you just give me a moment here to kind of go into this a little bit. It goes well with what we're talking about today with basically the contrary relationship between Saul and between Jonathan's faith. Well, there's a school actually founded in 1856 by none other than Charles Spurgeon, as the Pastors' College. Many of you familiar with that, Uh, with a mission of training men for evangelism, ministry, and pastoral leadership. Spurgeon was a wrecking ball. I mean, the guy preached. I mean, for 40 years in London, used mightily by God. Spurgeon believed that the ministry of the college was an utter necessity. This school, however, proved to be different from other schools. Spurgeon described its emphasis in writing this. He said, It seems to me that many of our churches need a class of ministers who will not aim at lofty scholarship, but at winning of souls. Spurgeon intended the pastor's college to be a soul-winning training ground. Further, he said that the pastor's college was to maintain and spread the gospel of grace of God by the education of faithful men called of the Holy Ghost. He believed other schools during his time were not sufficient for the students God had sent him. While many of the colleges were too expensive, more disheartening was their stance on the gospel. Spurgeon, rather than mourning that which was not, determined in his heart to establish what ought to be. Thirty-six years later, in April 1891, Spurgeon addressed the annual conference of the pastor's college for the last time with a sermon he titled, The Greatest Fight in the World. Spurgeon was an experienced and battle-worn soldier. Spurgeon considered it the life work of a pastor to be engaged in a crusade against error and against sin. He fully appreciated what it was to fight the good fight of faith, Dying at the young age of 57, his wife said that his death was brought on by a broken heart. He witnessed countless pastors turning away from the authentic gospel and the truth of God's word. This was called the downgrade. Spurgeon, in a letter to a friend, he wrote, you'll never see me again. This fight is Killing me. It all came to a head when Spurgeon withdrew his membership from the Baptist Union. Spurgeon lamented the absence of a confession of faith keeping Baptists from drifting away from evangelical doctrines. He feared that the downgrading of theology would produce an emptying of chapels and a multiplication of spiders. The betrayal of friends and those in whom Spurgeon trusted simply abandoned the truth and, in essence, abandoned Christ. Even Spurgeon's own brother James would be numbered with those who would forsake him and follow after the inventions of men and the gospel cheaters of the day. Spurgeon writes, In the place of gospel preaching, this new and improved variety of Christianity was substituting amusements. Spurgeon warned that many were turning the church into a playhouse, allowing the values and techniques of the theater to invade the sanctuary of the Lord anybody know where I'm going with this years ago when Rick Warren's book the purpose driven life hit the bookstore pastors and Christians alike went crazy within its pages were the keys to a successful prosperous church its major emphasis was on church growth the plan was purely pragmatic The solution was to invade the American landscape and find out what people wanted and then provide them the means. The results were astonishing, to say the least. Churches were starting to fill up, but the numbers were not from those who were interested in the truth of God's word, but rather for the amusement and entertainment. Yes, the numbers soared, but so did the problems. The churches were filled with the world because the church was behaving just like the world. Spurgeon asked the question, He says, What was chiefly to blame for the the decline? Spurgeon believed it was the preachers. The case is mournful. Certain ministers are making infidels. About atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. The reason I say all this is because Rick Warren was instituted in as the chancellor of the Spurgeon College a few days ago in London. You know, when I read when I read that news and I saw the pictures of him standing in Spurgeon's, I think it was at that time his office, and behind him was a big painting of Spurgeon. He stood in front of it. He had his gown on, uh, you know, um Rick Warren had his gown on, he had the hat on and everything. And I thought to myself, he's he epitomizes everything that Spurgeon stood against. And now making him the chancellor of Spurgeon's College is spitting literally in the face of Spurgeon. Spitting in the face of God, really. This whole idea of Rick Warren's theology was the very thing that Spurgeon was complaining about during the downgrade. Making the church a circus. Driving it with worldly amusements. That's everything that Rick Warren has done in his entire ministry that I've ever seen. And now this man is literally stepping in where Spurgeon left off. What a disgrace! What an abomination! And the fact—the worst thing about it is this: is that someone would actually accept that. What kind of person would accept that? How do you stand there, and get your picture taken, and with your, you know, with your smile on your face, and, and and say, "Hey, I'm the chancellor of Spurgeon's College." When you're not. Everything you do, Spurgeon would have kept you at a distance of probably 100 miles as a villain from the Spurgeons College. Trust me. He would not ever let a man like that within sight. And now here he is being brought into this establishment. It, it, It irks me to no end that we've gotten so bad that we are literally putting this guy in Spurgeon's place. Things have definitely gotten bad. The reason Jonathan and his armor bearer were not listed in, this, in, in the roles is because they were in the battle. As Jonathan even said, he said, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And if you read this story, which is so encouraging and so inspiring, it reminds us of two other individuals who stepped out in faith in the days of Moses, Joshua and Caleb, who were selected along with the ten other men to explore the promised land and give a report to Moses and the people. After a 40-day exploration of Canaan, the explorers reported, We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here, it's, here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The report frightened the people. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. The land was passed through and explored, and it was exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he said, he will lead us unto the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it will give to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will Devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Very similar to the words that Jonathan spoke to his armor bearer. And very similar words that we too should speak in the face of evil. God judged the people of Israel by making them wait 40 years to enter the land. He also promised that every person 20 years old or older would die in the wilderness and would not see the land with two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua. Why? Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Not one of you will enter the land, I swore, with uplifted hand to make you home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And this is a, just an incredible insight to this idea of what we see here. In this whole narrative of Saul and his son, Jonathan, we see this, this, this idea of stepping out in faith, trusting God to move on your behalf. And God does most certainly move and bring the outcome. I mean, the Bible is consistent and is filled with faithful men. And faithful women. Obviously read Hebrews chapter 11. You will see that they're numbered among many in there. Of what it truly looks like to live a life of faith. And it says in verse 18. And Saul said to Ahijah. Bring the ark of God here. For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. You know it's interesting at this point in the juncture and this point in the game this point of the battle this was really a use, this is really useless a useless time for 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 him to start in on wanting to be spiritual Saul probably was trying to look spiritual, but there was nothing to seek God about at this point. God had already spoken. God had already moved. God was already on the move. It wasn't time to pray. It wasn't time to seek the priest. It wasn't time to seek uh, the, the, the ark. It was time to get into the fight and do what God had commanded them to do. It's interesting. We need to know, you know, it said that they did not know what the time was. You know, we need to know what time It is, church. And we need to know exactly, you know, when God has us to pray and when God has us to apply action. And in verse 19, it says, Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, he says, Withdraw your hand. In other words, leave the ephod alone, for I have no time now to ask counsel from God. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. Indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was a very great confusion. And in verse 21, moreover, the Hebrews were with the Philistines before that time who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country. They also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. It's interesting because, you know, first Saul was, you know, seeking God when he should have been fighting. Then he ignores God when he should have been in battle. In verse 22 says, Likewise, all men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. The Bible says in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth You know, God's, God, the outcome was victorious. I mean, in spite of Saul's despite Saul's negligence and really just wasting of time and trying to look spiritual and trying to look important, why his son, an armor-bearer, were in the midst of war, is really almost unforgivable. But we see that, you know, in the life of Jonathan, You know, a life that's truly lived by faith in God. And that's what we want to extrapolate. We want to pull from this story this morning and we want to bring it all to Christ. Because Christ ultimately has destroyed the enemy when he went to the cross. Mm -hmm. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. The Bible says what? Our final enemy is what? Death. Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave. Mm -hmm. And all of us who'd want to escape. Death, hell, and the grave must apply their faith to Jesus Christ. Must repent and believe upon the only name that can save. I want to bring you to this last verse, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved what? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, I don't think there's any time for Jonathan, and his armor bearer, to boast. Why? Because they're busy. I've always noticed that the busiest people that are like, are productive in their lives aren't on Facebook all day. I look at some of these people sometimes I'm thinking, man, like, how much time do you have on your hands to be on social media all day? If you are truly as godly as you're telling everybody and criticizing everybody else's faith, You know, you would actually be busy engaging in the battle instead of fighting with other Christians all day long. Makes you wonder, right? I mean, if you get online and you see that I've been on Facebook all day, you better bring it to my attention. Three practical applications that I'm going to leave you with. Number one, step out in faith beyond your strength. Remember that today. You leave this building. Step out in faith beyond what you're comfortable with. Listen to what God's called you to do. Read the Word and step out into faith wherever you are. It doesn't have to be on a soapbox in the stockyards. It could be wherever you are. It could be in your marriage. It could be with your kids. It could be at your school. It could be wherever your workplace Go beyond what you normally are accustomed to. And don't stick just with the path of least resistance in what, you're, what you've been prone to just grow a comfort level for. But go beyond that. You know, believe God. Step out. It could be that one person that needs you to talk to them and you're afraid of them. Or you're afraid of what other people might think of you or whatever. Um, Let's push ourselves, you know, especially in a, in, in, in a nation that's under the judgment of God right now, that we would be out there uh, and we would be pressing in. Talk to that person that you've been telling yourself every morning, I've got to talk to him. I've got to talk to him. Talk to him. Reach out to him. Talk to them. Call that person. Call that family member. Whatever that may, that may be. Pray for the person who's struggling, who may be in a, a fit of depression or whatever it may be. Comfort people. Be there for people. This life isn't just for you to live out selfishly, just for yourself. We have this life to give away. We're here to die to ourselves. Other people may live. Our lives should be a life of continually serving and giving to others. We're not here just to live and spoil ourselves. You know, Jesus says don't, you know, he says, deny yourself, not help yourself. And that's a good place to be. Number two. Be authentic and not fake. Please. I would rather see a scarred up, beat up saint than I would someone pretending that they've got it all together. There's nothing worse than someone that pretends they got it all together and they're literally upside down behind the scenes. If we were to take a camera and we were to put it in your home with audio <laughs> and we're recorded the whole week of what's going on in your home, and then we see you in church on Sunday, would those things have any kind of connection? Would those things look of what you're telling other people or are perceived to be? We all fail in that area, right? I mean, come on. I will not want anybody to do that to me. But I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that God sees everything that we do, right? He knows everything we do. Nothing's hidden. Last thing is, um, just remind yourself daily In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 7 and 8. Read through that, read through that, read through that. You know, we trust in Christ, we're saved. God gives us the gift of repentance and faith. We're born again. But once we're born again, we trust Christ. We believe in Christ. We operate without boasting because nothing belongs to us to boast about. It's all in Christ alone. Remind yourself that daily, that you can trust Christ to step out into those areas where you're uncomfortable to go into those areas for the glories of Christ, knowing that Christ is right there with you, right beside you, all the way through until you take your last breath. But trust in the book that God has given us. Look at Ephesians. Trust the gospel and preach the gospel to others whenever you get a chance. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for your word, Lord. We ask, Father, that today... The things that, Lord, came from you that they would stick and that they would stay. And, Lord, that they would just get inside of our DNA today, even in our thinking, our mind. We walk out of this place. It could just be one word, one word that was spoken today, one thing that was said, Lord, that would ignite somebody to step up and to step out, Lord. Father, I pray for the church, Father. I pray for our church. I pray, Father, you continue to use the people here. Lord, I am humbled at what I've seen in this church, the men and women that occupy this small congregation. I am completely humbled and convicted. Lord, I ask you to to just turn it up again, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord. We want to serve you in this, the minimal amount of time that we have left on this planet. Lord, help us to be reminded that each day is fleeting. Our lives are like a vapor. As the psalmist said, O Lord, teach us to number our days. Help us to utilize our time for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.